0: Well, let me just start again by uh, welcoming our guests and those that are with us maybe for the first time or just new to fellowship. Uh, we want to welcome you and hope that you have already felt uh, welcomed uh, to be here. We kind of, as a church, really believe that if you're here as a, as a guest, we believe that it is God that has brought you here, and so we, uh, we believe also that he has uh, good plans for you and desires to to speak to you, even through the worship that we just had. And also now, as we open up God's word and look into God's word, this is also a part of how we worship God together. We're in a series in the book of Joshua. We're going to continue in that. It's an Old Testament book. And today, as you just heard the scripture read, we're we're going to read about the people of Israel finally crossing uh, the Jordan River. But the way that God does this is not necessarily how we would expect him to do it. And I think that's a good question for us to just start with. You know, have you noticed in, in your Christian life, if you're a believer and you've been walking with the Lord for, you know, any amount of time, you probably have noticed that uh, God works in that way. He works in unexpected ways. He does things at times that you do not expect, and then the things that he does are also not expected. And that's what he does here with the people of God in the Jordan River or as they're about to go across it. He's going to bring them into the promised land. That's what, we've been, what we have been talking about. They're finally going to cross over, but how they cross over is not haphazard. It's, it's not up to them. It's God's way. That's how they're going to do it, not theirs. And it'll be God's timing, not theirs. And again, this is the way that God works in our lives as well. So may we trust him as he leads us as we even look into this text today. So let's pray together and ask God to go before us. Lord, thank you for this gathering of your body And just the wonderful time of worship we've already had. Of making much of your name. Singing about faith and trust. Declaring uh, your return. Your victory. Lord, we're so thankful to you for who you are. And we're thankful that you speak to us through your word. And that you desire to do that even this morning. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that you would guide and direct our time together today around your word, and may may your people receive it, Lord, and and may you just continue to demonstrate to us as a church that you are a God that we can trust in. Thank you for that, in Jesus' name, amen. So as chapter 3 begins, it's it's after this recon mission that we talked about in chapter 2, But if you've noticed, if you've done any reading ahead in chapter three and chapter four, you've probably noticed that this is a tough narrative to put sequential order to chapter three connects more. It seems with chapter one sequentially, and then the narrative of chapters three and four are not really easy to summarize from a a time perspective. And, and that tells us something like, like much of the Bible. Chronology is, is not the goal of Scripture. It's not, it's not trying to make sure that we understand everything in a chronological order. And then you throw in, in this text, the Hebrew writing techniques, and you have a, a bit of a difficult narrative to follow. However, the truths and the spiritual meanings that are here for us are, are much easier to see and understand. And shouldn't be anything that we would miss as a result of the writing style. So that'll be our focus for today. And the first point that I want to make as we look into this text is that the Lord God goes before his people. The Lord God goes before his people. So look at verse three and it says, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priests, Then you shall set out from your place and follow it. So the Ark of the Covenant gets serious mention here in this chapter and in the next chapter. In fact, I think it's mentioned at least 17 times in chapters 3 and 4. And that means that the writer wants us to take notice of that. Like not to miss that. What it is and what it signifies. Well, the ark was a sacred chest uh, that the Lord God commanded Israel to build when they first left Egypt. It was an ornate work of art. It was made of acacia wood, about four feet in length, a little more than two feet high and deep. It was topped with beautifully carved angels overlaid in gold, both inside and out. You could read more about that in Exodus chapter 25. The ark contained the Ten Commandments, Aaron's, uh, Aaron's rod, And even as we learned in chapter one, the book of the law, the, the ark was supported on two long poles. It was carried on the shoulders of the four priests, one on each end of the poles. And so that's a little bit of the physical of, of, of the nature of the ark. But what made the ark so special was it was what it represented And that's what we really need to understand. It represented the presence of God. The angels on top symbolized the mercy seat, the place where God's glorious presence was made manifest then in Israel or to Israel. And so uh, to to, uh, the nation of Israel, it really kind of reflected the throne of God. And notice again what verse 3 says. As you see the ark, then shall you go. So what are the people to do? Well, they're to follow the ark. Now, what what does this mean? What does it represent? Well, it means that the Lord God is going before them. They are following God. That's who they're following. It's, it's It's not the people. He's the leader. He's the one to be followed. God. And it's represented in the ark. He's the one leading them into the land. He's the one who's going to stop the river. He's the one who's going to bring them across on dry land. He's the one who's going to defeat their enemies. He is doing it all. And notice the lengths that God goes to make sure that his people know this, that he is the one they need to look to. He is all they need. He is their God and no one else. And then we see next that the people are to stand back and watch what God does and how he leads his people. We see that in verse four. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, it being the ark. About 2,000 cubits in length do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So, why the specific instruction on the distance between the ark and his people? Why why that distance? Well, we remember that, that, again, the ark represents the presence of the almighty holy God, and it reflects that distance that wicked sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy God without consequence. So this holiness uh, represents his transcendence, that he is not like us. That's, that's, what, that, that's what that transcendence means, that, that God, yes, he is God and we have created in his image, but there are, there are aspects of his nature that are very much not like us, specifically his holiness. But there's more There's more to this distance than just the holiness and the purity of God. I see at least two other reasons that I want to point out. First one is this. God wants to make sure his people do not miss what he's about to do. He wants to make sure that his people, they don't miss it. So what God is doing here is he's, he's putting his power on display for his people to see. And he doesn't want them to miss it. A cubic length is about 18 inches or so. So 2,000 cubits is about 3,000 feet or about 1,000 yards if if I did my math right. And all you math people can go figure that out. That's a distance of 10 football fields. That's how my mind works. How far is that in football field length? This distance then from the river will make sure that they know, they see, and they understand something the only person leading them and the only one stopping the river is God himself. Because they're standing back and they're watching these uh, priests carry the ark on poles into the water. God did this. And sometimes, God puts us in situations to demonstrate one thing, that he's the one doing the work. He's the one doing it. It's him and it's him alone. And he gets the glory, just like we were singing about in that last song. The second reason is that this distance is going to allow the people of Israel to see the way they should go when crossing the river. Look at uh, verse four, that you may know the way you shall go. Well, you would think, that when the river is there in front of you and it parts that you'll know where to go, right? Like you see the one guy going into the deep part. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Did you just see what God did here? The Lord is the one who's going to show them where to go even when crossing the river. Even when, even as something as simple as that, God is the one leading them. And, and so what we see here, and I think we need to hear this because I think in church, going to church every week, you know, being, being a Christian for a long time, sometimes we just look at God as he's like the honorary leader. We pay him some homage, we sing about him, but we really don't expect him to actually intervene and do things in our lives. But this God is the living God, the living God. And he actively works, he actively intervenes, he actively saves, he actively rescues, and he actively leads his people. That's what he's doing here. And so even in the miracle, you're you're praying for the, the river to part for you, whatever your situation is. But even in the miracle, we need his leading, his guiding, because he's saying, I still need to show you where to go. He's guiding them, even across the dry land. Then we see third, that he says, consecrate yourself before the Lord. Verse five, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, we've talked about this consecration before with our campaigns and, and, and you're thinking, okay, what, why do they need to do this, right? Why do they need to, you know, consecrate themselves? Why do they need to prepare their heart in this way? Well, the crossing of the river, right, with the riverbed, you know, you have the riverbed and then you have, you know, the, the part going into the riverbed. You know, this is not simply a physical activity. This is, you know, we could look at it and go, well, that was probably a good workout for them or, you know, hey, we're going on a hike. You know, this is not a hike. It's not a workout. It's not a cool, fun trip. This is a spiritual exercise. And for the people of God to do it, they need to prepare themselves spiritually. They needed to purify themselves. Consecrate themselves. For what? For what purpose are they consecrated? They're just walking through, you know, dirt and rock. Like, to be prepared to see their God at work so they don't miss it, so they don't forget it later that what God was going to do among them. Sometimes we miss what God is doing because we have not consecrated ourselves before him. Too focused on ourselves, we miss what he is doing. He was doing this. He wanted them to know. Then we see the crossing of the Jordan, verse 12 and 13. When the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the ark shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. Notice how this was going to happen, how the Lord laid this out. The priest carrying the ark would have to approach the river, but the river would not open on their approach. No, they had to step into the river. They had to have faith, they had to trust in their God that he would do the work, the one leading them. But their role, they had a role. What was their role? Act in faith. So a little bit about the Jordan River. It sat in the Jordan Valley. Can't be exactly sure of the conditions at this time in history, in the book of Joshua. But just using the information that we have, the river's about 90 to 100 feet wide, with depths of three feet to as much as 12 feet but then there's floodplains around the river that extend much further. And so when the river overflowed, these floodplains would fill with water, making the river much wider than just the actual riverbed. And then because of the elevation drop and the time of harvest, when the Jordan overflowed, which is what verse 15 is telling us, this would have been a strong current coming down. Now, here's the question you ask: Why does the text point that out? Because it's pointing out that this is not the best time for crossing. It seems that God has chosen a time that actually makes this more difficult for his people, not easier. We shouldn't go at the time that the banks are overflowing. I mean, it's actually more to walk through, more difficult. Why does God do that? Why does he sometimes choose timing in our lives that makes it harder, not necessarily easier? Well, what he's doing here is he wants to make it clear to Israel and to us that he is the one we need. No human effort will be enough. What we need is our God. So Yahweh is delighting to show his might his power, and he's doing that in the face of our utter helplessness or the utter helplessness of his people so that they see, so that we see that when it comes to deliverance, when it comes to rescue, we contribute nothing. He does it all. That's what he's pointing out. God is the one bringing them across. No one else. God's doing this. And notice how they crossed the river on dry ground. God dried the riverbed. Something humans could never do instantly. Even with our technology today. We couldn't do this. God does it without a problem. Verse 17. Look at it. Now the priests. Bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. You know, the Lord could have done this a hundred different ways, right? He's God. He could have done this so many different ways. One of the ways is he could have just created a drought, right? And made it so that the riverbed just kind of dried up. But you notice he works in a way that actually makes it more difficult for the people but that gives him the opportunity to demonstrate what his power and might and that they need him. And that's what he's doing. He's letting them know that his people's dependence on him. So the question is, why are we so surprised when God works in specific ways that we do not expect? Why is that? Why, why, why are we so surprised when God works in specific ways that we do not expect? He's been doing that through his entire book here, this Bible. He's been doing that. And he's been doing that in the life of this church too.